Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Emerging Science in the Personalized Pursuit of Remission in Ulcerative Colitis Patients, is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. David Rubin. And I'm Dr. Christina Ha. Together, we'll be reviewing some of the newer therapies, including the second-generation anti-integrin therapies, our JAK inhibitors, and S1P receptor modulator therapies, as well as some of our existing treatments, and thinking about how together we can work to take better care of our patients with ulcerative colitis. Tina, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic because, as you know, this is a daily struggle for us and, and, and our patients. Yes. Uh, take us through some of the reasons patients don't respond to their therapies, what we call primary non-response, and maybe start by just telling us what that means. What is primary non-response? So the first thing is primary non-response means that you start a treatment and you don't see a clinically meaningful result after initially starting the therapy. And we usually gauge that after about 8 to 12 weeks of being on the treatment. So there are a lot of factors that may influence response or non-response. I think the first step is choosing the right agent for the right disease activity and the right disease severity for patients, particularly if they have high-risk features. So the right agent, the right disease severity, the right patient, there's a lot of things there, right? Exactly. No wonder we're having so much trouble. Right. And I think that it's about identifying these features early on. We know, for example, people who have extensive colitis, deep ulcers, or require steroids are that category of patients who probably require more assertive treatment earlier on in order to lead to a better outcome and hopefully lower rates of primary non-response. So, yeah, that's a very good point. So thinking a little bit about clearance or understanding more about what might happen. So who's the patient that's going to have rapid clearance of a monoclonal antibody? Those are going to be the patients who have probably the most severe forms of colitis. Those are the patients who have what we call the Mayo 3 disease, which is really characterized by just extensive spontaneous bleeding or the deep ulcers. But the primary predictor is really just having that low albumin because that low albumin indicates they're going to be wasting or losing a lot of the biologics or the protein-based monoclonal antibodies that we use. What are some of the mimickers that can throw us off that will give us uh, somebody with symptoms? We know they have ulcerative colitis, but make it harder for a treatment to work. Yeah, great question, and it's really important that we rule out these mimickers. And probably the two most common that we need to be aware of are infections, such as Clostridioides difficile, as well as CMV or cytomegalovirus infection. Is there a way that we can predict which therapy we should be using? Are we at that point yet? How do you make a decision about a patient's treatment? What's the first thing you use if somebody, let's say that they're not mild, but mm -hmm. they're more moderate or severe? How do you make that initial decision? Well, it's based on a variety of factors. It's based on how aggressive or how symptomatic they are at that time. It's based on their endoscopic features. And to a certain degree, it's also based on their labs. Because if I know that they have, for example, the low albumin that we were talking about, I want to choose a treatment that may not necessarily be as influenced by the albumin, or I can adapt or adjust the dosing earlier on in the disease course so I can potentially overcome it. So in the secondary loss of response, which is somebody who responds initially and then loses response, we have to reevaluate that mm -hmm. patient. So let's start by just defining what secondary loss of response or secondary non-response is. Mm -hmm. 
So for me, it's exactly as you say. They had an initial robust response to the induction treatment, and they've noticed some clinical benefit. But over time, what they've noticed, particularly for some of the biologics, is by the time they receive their next dose, there's increase in symptoms, or they start to develop some adverse reactions, whether it be infusion reactions or injection reactions, site reactions. And that's where you want to utilize therapeutic drug monitoring to see if it's because their levels are too low or if it's because they have antibodies. And if that's the case, then you reevaluate to see if there's another agent either within that class of medications that you may want to use or if their response is insufficient and you want to switch out of the class. My general approach to somebody who has a secondary non-response is first to make sure that they're actually inflamed Mm -hmm. because sometimes their symptoms are due to other things. The second, though, is to make sure they don't have that infection that you taught us about. So I want to make sure that that's not complicating all this. And the third one is to really figure out where the drug is, just like you said. So I do something very similar to what you're saying. And then the question is, how do you know what to use next? Mm -hmm. That's a big challenge. So how do you know what to use next? And it's tough. And this is where it's the idea of having biomarkers that can help predict what the next best treatment should be is very exciting. Are those currently available? Not yet, but I think that there are some areas where there may be some future opportunities. And I think that what you decide next is really dependent on how well they responded to that initial agent, how they're doing currently, how active their colitis is on the scope, and what's the most likely next best regimen. So the important thing is first to make sure the patient's actually inflamed. Sometimes patients with bowel problems have symptoms that are not due to the recurrence of the disease. Mm -hmm. Secondly is to make sure there's no infection. And then thirdly is to figure out where the drug is. And the different scenarios that can play out here is that uh, in the case of a monoclonal antibody, for example, there may be no drug detectable and they may have neutralizing anti-drug antibodies. Mm -hmm. In that case, sticking with the same class makes good sense because you showed that it worked initially and the reason the patient isn't responding is because of neutralizing antibodies. And the reality is that really only applies to anti-TNFs right Mm -hmm. now because that's the only class where we have more than one option. Um, But the second scenario would be if there's plenty of drug present and no anti-drug antibodies and the patient's inflamed and not infected, that's where we might think is the mechanism failing. And the theory behind this has to do with the fact that we're really not treating the cause of colitis. We're treating the result of it. And the human body is amazing and it finds a new pathway of inflammation. So at least in theory, what we're doing by blocking one pathway is that it may work for a while, but the human body has a collateral inflammatory pathway because it thinks it's protecting us, or maybe it really is protecting us. And therefore, that um, results in a loss of response, and we call that mechanistic escape. And in those scenarios, that's when you have to think about a completely new mechanism. And that's what drives us to make decisions. Uh, Fortunately, we have lots of mechanisms, but unfortunately, they don't all work as well as we need them to, and there's still room for a lot of improvement. And so let's look at a a video animation to understand a bit more about some of our existing and future therapies and how they work in ulcerative colitis. Novel mechanisms of action have the potential to change the landscape in ulcerative colitis by achieving sustained remission rates. The alpha-4 beta-7 MADCAM-1 and alpha-4 beta-1 VCAM-1 pathways as well as the TGF-beta-induced expression of alpha-E-beta-7 on T-cells in the gut, play important roles in the pathophysiology of IBD. The anti-integrin vetalizumab blocks the alpha-4-beta-7 MADCAM-1 pathway, thus blocking entry of these cells into the lamina propria. 
Natalizumab blocks both the alpha-4 beta-7 MADCAM1 pathway and the alpha-4 beta-1 VCAM pathway, preventing new T-cells from entering the gut. In addition to blocking the alpha-4 beta-7 MADCAM1 pathway, etralizumab, a novel gut-selective anti-integrin, has a dual mechanism of action by also blocking the alpha-E-beta-7 integrin on the leukocyte that allows it to bind E-cadherin on intestinal epithelium, disengaging the T-cell from the endothelial cell, thus preventing further epithelial damage from inflammation. Microphages and dendritic cells release cytokines such as interleukin-12, or IL-12, and interleukin-23, or IL-23, which induce a T-helper-1, or TH1, and T-helper-17, or TH17, cell response, respectively. Ustekinumab inhibits the P40 subunits of IL-12 and IL-23, thus blocking Th1 and Th17 stimulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Newer agents such as mirakizumab, risenkizumab, rizikumab, and guselkumab inhibit the P19 subunits of IL-23, preventing activation of the JAK-STAT pathway. Naive T lymphocytes play a key role in immune surveillance. Activation of these lymphocytes occurs in secondary lymphoid organs, such as the lymph nodes. The chemoattractant sphingosine-1-phosphate, or S1P, guides lymphocyte circulation through these lymphoid organs in a gradient-dependent manner. There are five S1P receptor subtypes, S1P1 to S1P5, that modulate the various actions of S1P. Investigative S1P1 agonists, such as ozanamod and atrazomod, block the S1P gradient-dependent egress of lymphocytes from the lymph nodes. Ozanamod is an oral S1P1 and S1P5 agonist. Atrazomod is an S1P1, S1P4, and S1P5 agonist. That was fascinating. So based on that video, and knowing what we know about primary and secondary non-response, Dr. Rubin, let's focus on some of these second-generation anti-integrins. How will these agents help overcome some of these issues that we're facing today for some of our UC patients? The newer anti-integrin therapy, and specifically a drug called etralizumab that is in development, is a therapy that blocks alpha-E and has a more selective uh, approach in some ways, but also has a possible second mechanism of action. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it still blocks trafficking to the bowel, which mm -hmm. is important, but it may also have an impact on the active inflammatory cells that are already in the intestine mm -hmm. and help them egress out of the intestine. So what we've come to appreciate is we think that this therapy may actually have two mechanisms of action and additionally provide benefit to our patients. The clinical trials for this are ongoing. Some of them have finished recruitment, and a couple phases are actually done and have been analyzed. And what we've learned about etralizumab is that this therapy works very well in both UC and Crohn's, as we would expect it to. And in the ulcerative colitis trial, they actually looked at patients who had already been on anti-TNF, mm -hmm. so a harder-to-treat group of patients, and the therapy looks very promising. And the safety profile, as we've come to expect with anti-integrin therapies, is uh, quite good as well. Now, etralizumab is dosed as an injectable therapy, mm -hmm. um, so it offers that mode of action or mode of delivery and therefore has some convenience to it as well. Mm -hmm. So this offers a promising new therapy that we're looking forward to, mm -hmm. uh, and we can add it to our list of options, and mm -hmm. we have to start thinking carefully then about 
Would we use this primarily for an induction and maintenance strategy in new patients? Mm -hmm. Would we position it after failing other drugs? Mm -hmm. This is the whole conversation we have about everything that we get. So Dr. Rubin, you had mentioned that one of the differences between vetolizumab and etrolizumab is that etrolizumab works on alpha-4 beta-7 as well as alpha-E beta-7. So does that mean it's still gut-selective, which is one of the primary reasons why vetolizumab is so appealing to a lot of our patients? We believe it is, and we think that by hitting those two targets, we may have a broader action. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because our observations with natalizumab, which we were using primarily for Crohn's when it was available and when it was the only anti-integrin we had, was that it seemed to work better in some ways than what we've seen with Vito. And of course, there's never been a head-to-head, -head, so this is my observation. Similarly, we're hopeful that therapies that offer um, a similar safety profile, but maybe a broader action, may cover more of what we need in the mm -hmm. bowel. And we recognize that it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Whenever you try to knock off one pathway, you're probably missing others. Mm -hmm. So you have to find this balance between doing more and not affecting the safety profile. And that's the hope of at least this therapy. Mm -hmm. So that's very fascinating and encouraging that we have another integrin that's potentially going to be very useful for our UC patients. But what about some of the newer JAK inhibitors or maybe even the S1P agents that are currently being studied in trials? Right. So a very exciting time and a lot of new treatments coming. So the JAK inhibitors and the S1P receptor modulator therapies are small molecules. Okay. Janus kinase is an enzyme that is involved in cellular activation, and when a cell is exposed to environmental triggers, it's what turns it on to start producing inflammatory cytokines and trigger a variety of other pathways. When you block Janus kinase, you knock down multiple pathways. There are four different Janus kinase um, molecules, specifically JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and something called TIC2. Tofacitinib, the one JAK inhibitor currently available for ulcerative colitis but did not work in Crohn's disease, blocks JAK1 and 3 and overlaps a little bit into JAK2. So it's a non-selective, broadly acting JAK inhibitor. There are several JAK1 inhibitors that are in development that seem to work well in Crohn's and probably work well in UC, and we've had some data to suggest that as well. They work fast, but we shouldn't confuse their convenience for their safety because they knock off a lot of inflammatory pathways and there may be things that we have to keep an eye on and we're learning about. One of them, for example, what we've learned from tofacitinib is that it increases the risk for activation of herpes zoster and mm -hmm. causing shingles and that seems to be a signal that we've seen with some of the other JAKs uh, as well. Mm -hmm. The S1P receptor modulator therapies are very interesting as well. There's two that are currently in development in the IBD space and what these do is they actually trap activated lymphocytes in the mesenteric lymph nodes. Okay. Um, by doing so, it has a similar action as what we talked about with anti-integrins, yeah. but works slightly differently in that it traps these activated cells in lymph nodes. The cells that aren't activated, or at least not being driven for the IBD process, can still respond. Mm -hmm. So you have a preserved adaptive immune system, but you have an inhibited um, in immune response that's going on with the IBD. Mm -hmm. So this offers another potentially uh, novel mechanism that would offer safety mm -hmm. and is cellular based. I think the takeaway messages for our colleagues are that we have a lot of good options already available. Mm -hmm. There are promising drugs that are in the pipeline that are mm -hmm. near term. I mean mm -hmm. the next year or two we're hopeful they will come. Um, and that in order to use our current drugs most effectively they need to be monitoring patients, mm -hmm. they need to pair 
the dosing of the drug with the disease activity, mm -hmm. and they need to be thoughtful about approaching patients who are losing response uh, to make sure they understand why that might be happening and then choose another option. And behind all this, of course, has to be an ongoing dialogue with payers mm -hmm. so that they don't drive us into the ground and that there's some rational decision-making that is not all about cost but also includes some medical facts that will help us. And hopefully we'll be part of that discussion. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.